Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. In this episode, we talked with Major Ian Brown. Major Brown is the operations officer of the Crew Lock Center of Innovation in Quantico, Virginia. He's also the author of A New Conception of War, John Boyd, the U.S. Marines, and Maneuver Warfare. We talked about the Crew Lock Center and what they do and how they improve professional military education at Marine Corps University. And we talked a lot about wargaming. All right, here we go. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Who is... Major Ian Brown. Yeah, so I am a. Uh, I I do not have an MOS as a as an innovator or a creative thinker. That's that's not a thing. Um, uh, my background is as a CH fifty three helicopter pilot for the Marine Corps, and that's where I spent the preponderance of my career. Um, um, sort of uniquely, um, mostly with one squadron, which uh, you know we uh, it, it is it is not not entirely standard to do it that way. Um, in fact, we talk about how like. Our, uh, our patches, our squadron patches, there's like Velcro loyalty because you might get an order someday to like, you got to rip that one off, go join another squadron because they need more bodies for some reason and you throw another one back on. But I was very fortunate to be able to 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 leave HMH 361 Marine Heavy Helicopter Squadron 361 out of Miramar. I left a bunch of times and I was able to come back in different capacities. So uh, um, aside from a very small amount of time in HMH 462, which was my first fleet squadron, most of my time has been with 361, so I've got I've I've only got one patch, uh, which is which is unusual. But I've also done time as a in different seats. I did um, a tour as a forward air controller with First Battalion, Seventh Marines out of 29 Palms. Did a 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit with them, which was a unique experience in itself. And then I've also spent time as a as a requirements officer at Combat Development and Integration, which is as we were talking about before. That's like the big place where uh, it manages funding for equipment programs, weapon systems. Um, if it costs money, you name it, there's somebody who's responsible for it over there. But it's also the place where conceptual development uh, occurs, where doctrinal development occurs. It's all, it's a, it's a maze of offices in there. And uh, you know, even on my on my third year when I was there, I was still finding new new offices that I didn't even know existed down there. There's just there's a bunch of stuff. Um, under the CDNI umbrella, but I, my my time there was as a requirements officer for tactical air control party equipment, you know, which was nice because I had been being a forward air controller as a user of the equipment, so I got to go back and and try and help improve some of that equipment as a requirements officer. And then uh, I've spent the last almost three years now here as the operations officer for the Brook Relax Center, Innovation and Future Warfare at Marine Corps University. Your call sign. We have to we have to rehash this story too. Yeah, yeah, no, it's funny. I was I was telling the the, the same story to uh, some of our Swedish friends who were visiting last week over at Swedish Defense University. I'm not quite sure the story translates into Swedish as well as it does in English, but the uh, yeah. So my call sign is JLo. Uh, as in sort of a general sense, the way naval aviators is probably the same for Air Force aviators is you get a call sign by doing something memorable or infamous, and then we hang that on you for the rest of your career. Um, I'm at least fortunate, at least in my perspective. I, it, it was not one of these things where you did something really dumb and they hung you with it. It was more 
some, uh, uh, I like to summarize it as I had some wardrobe malfunctions when I was a new co-pilot. But um, it came out of my first deployment to, to Iraq. And when I got there to Al-Assad Air Base, one of my buddies from flight school, he was in the squadron rotating out. And, he, and as we do on every deployment, right, like you try and unload all your stuff so you don't have to take it back with you. And, and he was unloading all his gear and he had one of those, those Blackhawk drop holsters for your M9 pistol that, uh, that I thought looked really cool. You know, me not knowing any better, um, but it looked really cool. Like a big, easy to get down to. It's got like built-in ammunition pouches. I just, I just thought it looked great. So I took it off his hands for uh, what I thought was a reasonable price. Um, I think he actually gouged me a little bit. But anyway, so I, I get it and then I realize um, I don't have anywhere to like to hang it on my flight suit because flight suit doesn't have like belts or belt loops. Uh, it's just it's it's fireproof pajamas, you know. So I had to go and get myself a like a, a heavy duty riggers belt to strap this contraption onto. Um, but I did that and I, I have this thing all together. And, you know, so the first time I'm wearing it in the squadron spaces, thinking I look like a gunslinger, you know, out in the old west ready to, you know, to go out to the uh, to the wild west out there outside the wire of Al-Assad. Uh, and I'm walking down the hallway and somebody from the office behind me goes, hey, J-Lo, shake that booty. And I turn around, I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? And he's like, look down, look down. And I look down and my high-speed contraption with my riggers belt had bunched up all my extra flight suit material in my posterior region. And so um, it had greatly improved my assets there. <laughs> uh, so, so that's how it started. And then I didn't help myself because it was also winter time and uh, it was cold, it's cold in the desert. and um, I like to go run, so I would wear cold weather running gear, which it tends to be very form fitting, um, and uh, doesn't leave a lot to the imagination. So when they when they saw that after the flight suit, like it started with J Lo, and then that made J Lo stick. So um, it's been J Lo ever since. <laughs> so funny. Uh, I came across the Krulock Center of Innovation on LinkedIn, actually. I remember just scrolling through my feed because, you know, my occupation or at least my current assignment is to manage the information space uh, for, for Tesseract. And I came across the Crew Lock Center. Can you tell us a little bit about the Crew Lock Center and the competitive advantage it brings? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware of there are other um, sort of PME enhancing groups that are out there. Um, although if, I don't know if they cover everything that the Kulak Center does, because I, you know, I feel like we're, we operate in a lot of different lanes, but the, the center was initially stood up um, out of a uh, sort of a, a directive after the university does its regular review for accreditation to, to grant degrees. In the last review, a area of improvement identified was injecting more critical thinking, um, creative problem solving into the PME curricula, you know, into the student experience. Um, and it didn't really like the that was the determination, but sort of how you get there, it was it was left open. And so what Marine Corps University decided to do was, you know, we'll build a center to focus on that. We'll put some people in there where they can focus on that, you know, 24 uh, seven throughout the academic year and, and outside of the academic years as well. You know, in between to prepare for the next one to find opportunities and different ways of doing that. Um, and so that's what we do. Like in, in a nutshell, we try and find um, new approaches to learning, um, new material, um, unconventional ways of thinking about old material, um, different ways of, of developing decision-making habit patterns, different ways of you know, increasing your, your critical thinking and your creative problem-solving skills. 
so that when you when you have touch points with us, we we arm you with that, and you leave MCU after your time here, you know, with some more of that ammunition, some more insights, some more habit patterns that you can take with you and then apply back out in the fleet to to gain now to increase your own cognitive advantage and hopefully you try and improve that of the Marines who are around you as well in your unit. And um, it's a it's a focus point. I think it's an important focus point because as we were talking about before we hit record, um, we are sort of a, a sense across not just in DOD, but sort of a sense and, you know, looking at the the global, you know, geo the strategic picture. Right. There are a lot of nations who are unfriendly to us and to our allies who are sort of closing the material gap between um, what we bring to a competitive environment and what they can bring. You know, the material gap is shrinking and uh, to the point where we were talking about, like, it's hard to it's hard to categorize as near peer anymore. Like in a lot of ways, they're peers and in some ways they've outstripped us, which is uncomfortable for a nation that's used to being, you know, the only superpower for a few decades now but um you know the nice thing is there are there's always more areas to gain advantage if you sort of gauge your mind to it properly and 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 we look at the mind really the cognitive domain as the advantage where we can really gain something now and um there's there's a lot of reasons why that's in it that's a that's a good focus effort to have um um and i think they're part part of it is because i think in in the U.S. military and sort of the U.S., I don't want to make broad social, you know, um, points here, but you know, our 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 encouragement and our ability to sort of encompass lots of different um, viewpoints and problem-solving processes and different approaches to getting after a problem, you know, like it, it it can be very messy at times, but we 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 welcome lots of different inputs because you never, you don't know which one might be the one that works. So let's, let's look at all of them. You know, I think that's, that's a baseline cultural advantage um, that we have over some of our competitors who are large, like authoritarian states where multiple viewpoints are discouraged because they can potentially undermine the legitimacy of a regime that is always self-conscious that it's not really legitimate because it doesn't really reflect the full, you know, the full will or desires of the people it's in charge of. So, if you're already capping your um, your people's ability to sort of cognitively express themselves, if you will, you're creating a handicap for yourself. Conversely, if if we exploit that, if we try and encourage that, if we try and get people to do more of it, now we're creating a, a much bigger cognitive advantage, and that cognitive advantage can then feed back into you know certain material advantages at some point, right? But the the, the cognitive advantage is something that we can really maximize and exploit. And so um, that's sort of the approach that we take here is we're gonna, we're gonna maximize your brain power while you're here and give you new cognitive tools when you walk out of here that will help you operationally increase that cognitive advantage against competitors. Looking at all the, um, the facets of maneuver warfare, I think the core of it is, really, is truly owning that, that cognitive space against your enemy. Am I, I mean, am I wrong there? Yeah, and that, that was always its uh, its sort of the, the spiritual engine that was driving it, if you will. Um, and I think there are places in the doctrine where it specifically says, like, this is not about a weapon system or a particular table of organization or a particular force construct, like the because those things can all change. And and, you know, that was something that was sort of understood as the, the first generation of maneuverists, if you will, 
were looking at this thing and trying to find ways to gain advantage in a uh, you know in in, in in a world that had some echoes to ours today, right? Like they had just come out of a long, unsuccessful, irregular war. They uh, they looked around at the world that was that had marched on around them as it had happened to see you know a rising competitor who was trying to gain parity and who was a, a potentially a global threat. Um, and but you never knew where you would have to go still in that environment. You know, you, you didn't know if you were going to go to desert, if you're going to go back to the jungle, if you're going to go to the mountains. You didn't know if your opponent was going to have all kinds of planes, trains and automobiles or not, you know, or uh, or different weapon systems that you may not have access to. They might have organized themselves differently. You know, all of these sort of physical elements that have a, an infinite variety of connections, you know, how how is a as a the smallest of the armed services and as a you know a middleweight force that never has the the most heavy firepower or the you know the the biggest tanks or or other things um what what commonality what what common thread of advantage can you try and gain and the determination was the common thread on the other side is there's always a human adversary so let's focus on the human element of more of warfare which we always talk about is you know, there's a there's a mental, moral, spiritual element to it. Uh, let's focus on that and how we can gain gain mental, moral advantages in how how we organize and train and equip ourselves, um, and uh, and go after that. And and we can because there's always going to be a human element. We can get less wrapped around the axle about whether like this particular weapon system or this particular force structure is the best. Because if we're if that's the race we're chasing, we're always going to be like chasing after like throwing money after the next big thing. We're constantly reorganizing ourselves um, and and just be in a state of chaos. But the human's always going to be there, uh, you know, until we're fighting the Terminators, at which point we'll have to shift our paradigm of war. Right? <laughs> but there's until that day comes, there's always going to be a human somewhere down that that equipment chain or that force structure chain. There's a human at the other end. So let's focus on that. And how to gain how to gain advantages in the spaces that humans operate, which is not just the physical. We operate in the in the mental and the moral spaces. So let's look at that. Mm -hmm. I look at the commandant's reading list and any other type of like educational tool similar to that, just as lethal as an M sixteen, right? Uh, just as lethal as any other weapon system, because as we're talking right now, we're we're talking about evolving the weapon system between our ears, right? But as you were talking about with the different threats and, and the character of war evolving, I think that is um, a great transition to talk about uh, the war gaming tools um, that, that you have here at the Crew Lock Center. I think that's just such a cool way to, to bring all levels of the chain of command together um, to, you know, to evolve that, you know, that strategic thought. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So it's been, um, it's definitely been an area of increased effort on our part and that uh, it, it ties back, not doesn't universally tie back, but a large driver of that is that the, since General Berger came on board and issued his initial planning guidance, uh, Wargaming was all over that. In in fact, I did a, uh, a admittedly non-scientific like analysis of the different, you know, themes that are in there. And as a distinct theme, Wargaming gets sort of more text on the page in the, the planning guidance than almost any other theme that's in there, which, you know, to us is like, well, he must think it's pretty important, right? So let's find find ways to increase opportunities to do that, to increase access to different, you know, different student demographics to do that. 
And um, at, at the same time, you know, Marine Corps University, the, the leadership, you know, took the Commandant's guidance pretty directly as they directed to go do something. And so started putting together a master plan to increase those opportunities inside the curricula. So, and we help with that, but, you know, we also try and offer external, you know, extracurricular opportunities to do wargaming. And the, the stuff bleeds over a lot, so there's not really sort of clear lines of distinction, but the, uh, whether it's in the curricula or whether it's something we do distinctly at the Kulak Center, the focus is on educational wargaming, which is using wargaming tools to support learning outcomes, learning objectives that the students will encounter here. Um, so that drives, um, that drives certain decisions on what types of games you're looking to get access to. And uh, it's also, it's, it, it also forces you to realize that because there's different learning objectives for different schools based on you know, what they're studying at different levels of you know, military operations, you're gonna need a bunch of different tools to offer. And so that, that's one of the things we try and do is um, target, target the, the students at a level that they're operating at and give them options down in there. And um, when we hired our Wargaming Director, who's a, he's a retired Colonel of Marines, Tim Barrick, whose game actually we're staring at right now to those in the audience is the operational war game um, system. But uh, that, that's one of the, the tools and it actually it targets one of those levels. It's operational level, right? It's in the title. Um, you know, but so, but, but finding those different, different things that meet them at their level. So we've sort of built out a, uh, and with, you know, Colonel Barrick providing some, um, some much needed sort of professional granularity because he's done, he did war gaming at the Winco Warfighting Lab before he came here. And he's also a longtime gamer, just out of his own interest, you know, but having having lots of options. So we'll have uh, certain options for like the War College, different options for the Command and Staff College, different options for Expeditionary Warfare School, different options for the College of Enlisted Military Education. Um, and so part of our mandate is to go find those options to present to them so they don't have to do that work themselves. Um, and, and so we're always, you know, looking at um, maximizing exposure and opportunity, but also uh, within sort of the time frames that the students have available to them, which which we think is in some ways it could you could look at it as a constraint, but in other ways it can be an opportunity because um, we all know it's very hard to find space and training to plug something new into, right? You usually have to take something else out that might be important. So but if I can give you some more gaming options where you got a couple hours of time on your calendar, you plug this in there, go do some more gaming instead of, you know, I don't know, you know, giving the hallways an extra extra sweep, right? Um, and so finding, finding those opportunities that are more, more accessible has been huge for us as well. Um, different ways that we do what I talked about, some of the things we do are injected into the formal curricula. We do other things like wargaming tournaments. We do a tournament called Sea Dragon every year, which is a cross school tournament. So students from all the different schools can put together teams and, uh, we will offer like a game platform and we usually change the game platform each year, just kind of keep it, keep it fresh. Or if there's something new and exciting, you know, that we want to expose them to, like uh, uh, a couple of years ago, um, DARPA was working on this software called Proteus, which was a real-time tactical level computer game uh, that was heavy on the information environment. And so uh, there's a doctor, there's a professor over at School of Advanced Warfighting who had a connection with DARPA. So they brought all their stuff and they got to do beta testing on their software and we got to expose the students to a new type of wargaming which, um, oh, by the way, is now going to be the main wargaming platform that the Marine Corps Warfighting and Analysis Center is going to be using. So we're, we're kind of proud that, you know, Crew Like Center called it two years ago, and now it's here for, uh, for wise, well, for use at least at the, the wargaming center. 
Um, but but those tournaments do uh, so they it's more exposure, but it's also more opportunities for for increasing those you know creative thinking, um, those problem solving skills because you're not only learning uh, a new game and new uh, you know potentially new tactics or weapon systems in the game, you're getting exposed to different thought processes because maybe you as a captain are have to fight your team against some majors or maybe some lieutenant colonels or maybe some gunnies right and uh, so you've got a you're going to get exposed to lots of different different ways of thinking and solving problems because the perspective of a lieutenant colonel might be different from that of a gunny of how they would solve the problems um, and so like whether you win or lose it really forces it gives you more exposure to more perspectives which gives you at the end of the day a wider repertoire of experience of mental experiences to draw from than if you just spent your whole time fighting your fellow captains you know within your same MOS like I, I don't want to oversimplify but like say a bunch of a bunch of infantry captains um, will likely have some different perspectives on things but ultimately like you're only taking one one rank from one small community and they've probably all been brought up in similar fashion so the tactics and the, th- the thought process process are probably going to be similar in a lot of ways whereas if I take that that 03 captain, that infantry captain, and I put them against a, uh, I don't know, uh, public affairs major, or I put them against a logistics lieutenant colonel, or I put them against a, um, uh, I don't know, you know, a cyber gunny, for example. Like now I'm, I'm really putting them in, I'm putting both of those groups into an alien environment against a thought process that they're not used to. And that's where some really good learning can occur by exposing you to that. Um, we also do, uh, aside from the tournament, we do other, uh, we do like, uh, we do open houses, you know, we did wargaming open houses that might've been the one you came to last summer to just showcase different types of wargaming. We do uh, faculty development and this summer, I know Mr. Barrick's looking at doing a, a robust faculty development process because he's been bringing in a lot of, you know, new good game options. Just going to show them to the faculty and they can see which ones might suit their purposes. Um, you know, and we also um, one of our lines of effort is like doing outreach and going and finding out what other people outside the Marine Corps are doing. And there's lots of other groups out there who are doing wargaming. And it's good for us to learn what they're doing, because that might be something that could be really useful for our students here and our faculty here. Uh, and conversely, they may find what we're doing here in you know, Marine Corps University interesting on their end. And our recent road trip uh, was sort of a microcosm of that because we went over to Swedish Defense University in Stockholm and the Formal invitation was for a military or future military leaders conference to look at, you know, different challenges for the future military leader, right? But we knew that Swedish Defense University had been had their own like sort of grassroots war game. It's a software, it's a computer-based war game that they were working on. So and we'd heard all about it, but we hadn't had a chance to go look at it. Um, and so and so we did, right? Like they it's a computer-based game. It's like a real-time tactics type game where the clock is always running. So uh, you got to keep moving because your adversary is always moving. But they built out this amphibious naval um, aviation war game at like I, I don't want to I don't want to simplify, but like they built it in their basement. Like a bunch of, it started off as a research project um, that was sort of done in the basement, and it's grown um, exponentially to the point where now it's being used as a regular tool in their naval officers course. And the way that they use it is kind of the way that we. We hope to actually use wargaming here. They're in some ways they're a little bit ahead of us, but you get multiple touch points with this wargame throughout your two-year program there at Swedish Defense University. And the scenarios they're tailored to start off simple, 
but they build up into higher levels of complexity based on where you are in the curriculum. But you're always coming back to the same game system. So you don't have to relearn the entire game system once you've seen it. So, you know, for your initial your initial thing, you might be in charge of a very small like naval surface force. But then as you go on, now you're doing larger combined arms naval force with ground forces and air forces built in there. Then you go on to multiple task forces. Then you go on to like a larger joint fight. So the complex the game allows for increasing levels of complexity, but it's the same game and you and you get multiple iterations of it throughout your curriculum. You know, so and they built that in their basement on a, on a limited budget, and it's a hugely impressive tool um, that we hope to actually demo over here at some point um, when they do a reciprocal visit. Um, you know, but we also showed them what we were doing. We brought a couple games along with them that are uh, focused on on sort of the Scandinavian, the high north area, and uh, so they could get a chance to see how we approach wargaming. Um, you know, but it's but. You know, almost as a as a happy accident, we learned about another game that they have that was not part of the discussion. I only I only learned about it because I was sitting next to this um, um, amphibious regiment for the Swedish forces, but it's their equivalent of the Marine Corps. You know, he's talking. This uh, lieutenant colonel was talking about a uh, pretty uh, simple game that he uses for his students, but to teach them to think about disruptive technology. And it's it all it is is you're given like a, sort of a tactical overview scenario. Um, but you get to make up a technology and then you have to play out how it would actually impact how you would do things on the battlefield. And as long as your technology is sort of bounded by what we know about science and physics today, right? As long as it's in, in that realm, you can make up whatever you want, you know? So if you're talking about, uh, everything from, you know, nanobots to things that can look through walls or, or around walls, um, you know, to, to space-based or aviation-based or all, do whatever you want to. But you get to you create it and then you put it into the game scenario immediately and you see what that does is to your tactical decision making um there's like man that's that's really awesome we need to do something like that over here um so it's and, and you know so again but part of our, our mandate of our outreach is that's new knowledge we can bring back here and then tee up for the students and faculty that come through the university and give them more exposure to something that's new and different that they might not have seen otherwise mm -hmm. i think that plays into that notion of flexibility when I was listening to uh, uh, to the last podcast that you did um, with the PME student, um, I, forgot. I forgot. Oh, Cap name. Captain Haas. She was talking yeah. about um, their like their core like tenant essentially is like just being flexible, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, yeah. When she mentioned that, that that made my my eyes open a little bit during the interview because that. Uh, the way she phrased it, it, it carried a clear level of importance to, I mean, you know, her as a student, but also clearly to the Swedish military. So, um, you know, we don't, you know, we talk about adaptability, flexibility on the U.S. military side, but for them to have it as a clearly identified core attribute is uh, is unique, and it's it's pretty it's pretty telling about the sort of the cognitive approach they take to warfare, which is uh, that things will change, things will get disrupted, things will go in directions you don't expect. And you can deal with that if you've already, um, you know, caged your brain to be able to operate in that environment. Mm -hmm. uh, also, uh, I was thinking through, uh, as you were talking about letting your troops come in and take a break from traditional training and incorporate them into 
cognitive exercises like this. And I was thinking about uh, to have another Air Force Marine Corps tie, the joint paper that General Berger and uh, General Brown wrote on redefining readiness, right? And I know a lot of it was talking about like the strategic like war, uh, like war waging implications of, of how we've operated the last couple of decades, but it also makes me think, all right, well, how are we training at the ground level? Like, how are we truly preparing individuals for the future fight? And more importantly, joint concepts. Uh, how are we preparing airmen and Marines and soldiers and sailors for that matter, and, and our guardians, to go into a contested environment, cut off from communications uh, in a you know far off land? Uh, and if, if they're not gonna like, not only do they need to be enabled with uh, with that like essence of like mission command and, and mission type orders, they have to be able to then think, not just act, right? Like so, and I think this provides that that edge of, all right, this is how like th- this is how we need to think. Uh, this is how my my boss would think. This is uh, these are the you know when we're talking about hey you know roll i'm looking at you know a, a bunch of die here like there there's you know chance and probability you know how do i how do i mitigate risk how do i you know what what is acceptable risk how do we truly teach like uh you know risk management in an operational sense uh, i think that's uh, something that the air force can certainly take because i know i've never heard of of uh airmen having an at least you know, frontline airmen having an opportunity to to war game. Hey, this is what agile combat employment looks like. This is how you know we we can't get into the obviously like the the top secret war gaming stuff that they do at the Pentagon to talk about agile combat employment. But like, how can we get our airmen to think and understand and truly conceptualize everything that's going on? So funny you mentioned the agile combat employment because. Last year, uh, one of the presenters at our annual innovation summit and who was a student at the Marine Corps War College, Air Force guy who made a war game about agile combat, agile combat employment, right? Mm-hmm. It's called, Ace, yeah. Yeah, it's called Kingfisher Ace. I don't know if you've heard of it. Or... You, you told me, actually, you did tell me about that. Yeah, so yeah, I I, I, I'm not sure where he is now or or how to get a hold of him, yeah. honestly. <laughs> but the uh, point is, like, war games are a way to explore some of these concepts you know, in an admittedly abstracted fashion and not always with like, you know, the highest the highest granularity, top secret information. But you can still do things in the young class level um, with sort of understanding the limitations of the system. You can still do really useful things. So he had developed a, a war game about agile combat employment. Um, and in fact, if you go on to our, our YouTube channel, uh, one of the AY21 Innovation Summit presentations is him explaining his game. Um, you know, so that is a way to get frontline airmen some experience on how to do that. You know, but some of the other things you described there, though, I don't want to, you know, we don't have to talk about wargaming this whole time, but I think they, it highlights some of the things that wargaming can do for you and can do for your, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, guardians, hurrah. Um, but giving giving them exposure to those things in a um, in an abstracted environment. You know, to to your point of how do I expose them to joint concepts? Well. One of the war games that we use, um, the prototype version is called Fleet Marine Force. There's a different version coming out down the road called Littoral Commander. But it was developed to do just that. It was developed to, it kind of grounds you in things that are familiar to Marines. So it grounds you in a Marine Littoral Regiment, um, how how we think that's going to look in 2030, 2035 timeframe. Takes an adversary, uh, Red Force, uh, 
with about the same capabilities we think it would have in that time frame. So you start with what you're familiar with, you know, with the Marine Corps ground forces, but then a large part of your gameplay and decision-making is introducing you to all these other joint capabilities that we are seeing the MLR might have in a, you know, in an expeditionary advanced base environment when we're all distributed all over the place where you might have much smaller forces covering much larger amounts of ground and how we're going to operate and survive and, you know, win under those conditions is tapping onto the joint force what in wherever way we can and with the assets that are available. And so now you as a Marine get to be like, well, what does the Air Force bring to the table? Holy cow, I can call on like, uh, I can call on some uh, some long range bomber strikes. I've got some cell capabilities. I can tap into space to do some of my ISR and, uh, and longer range communications. Wow, that's great. What does the Navy do for me? Well, Navy's got a bunch of fire support that would be great for me to know about, see how that works on the board. And conversely, I can get a better understanding of how the Navy might tactically employ those things because, um, you know, as a, as a Marine fire support, I sort of like to have my supporting assets a little bit closer to me, you know, where I can, if I can't see them, I know they're at least over the, sort of the next hill, so to speak, um, they're in direct support of me. Um, well, the Navy doesn't like to, you know, Navy doesn't so much do like, you know, the battleship naval guns, broadsides, fire support. But they have uh, they have fire support. They have they have you know missile systems that can, can do things for me. But they don't like to be over the next hill. They like to be far far away because that protects their force, right? That that mitigates their own risk. Um, and so I get to see that that uh, that disparity on the battlefield. But then I also get I can also understand why the Navy would want to keep their ships farther away because that keeps them safer from shore based fires that could hurt them. But they can still help me because their munitions have such long range that like that off that standoff that helps them it's transparent to me as long as the thing shows up and hits the thing i want it to hit i can see that now on the map um you know i can i can get a better sense of what what cyber what information operations um can do for me in terms of um concealing my own force or revealing where the enemy force is um you know army systems you know they have some you know ballistic missile defense capabilities as well as some longer range strike capabilities marine corps doesn't have um, but I can throw those on the table and at least get a sense of what the joint force does in those spaces. And you get these, these, you know, eureka moments sometimes when a Marine sees something that they, you know, if they've never heard of THAAD before, you know, terminal high altitude air defense for, you know, incoming ballistic missiles. If that was not even on my radar, right? Now I have a thing on the table. I can see what it does for me to protect me from, um, the threat that I think I'm going to go face, you know, if we're talking about Chinese capabilities in the in the Indo-PACOM region, well, they've got a bucket load of ballistic missiles. Like we've all seen like the range rings of death, you know, we're going to be catching ballistic missiles with both hands, right? Um, my MLR doesn't have anything organic that really helps me with that, but the Army does. Um, or the Navy might have some stuff on their ships that can give me an umbrella of coverage and defense. And I can see all those things on the war game table. And I'm not learning... The specific tactical employment i'm not learning the classified numbers for how far those things can reach but it's on the table it does something for me and i can see how it interacts with all those other different pieces of the joint force that's great that is um that's tremendous exposure to different things that now i have at least an awareness of it so if i do go out into that theater for real and i have to do some sort of joint planning with army navy air force space force i at least have a an understanding of some of the things they can do for me so I can intelligently ask for that support rather than like, I don't know what they have, so I don't ask for it. 
And, you know, now I've, I've really diminished my own capabilities. Yeah. But to your point about like your decision-making and seeing, and your boss's decision-making, that's another thing that putting people around the game table lets you do. You can see that decision-making, right? You can see what your boss does. You can see what your, your adjacent people do. You can see what your subordinates do. And, you know, understanding that it's still an abstracted environment and okay, maybe we're sitting in a comfortable air conditioned room and I don't have all the stressors of combat on me, but, um, you, um, you probably wouldn't be surprised, but you know, some, some audience members might be surprised. And even in an abstracted environment, which is pieces of cardboard and paper on a table, if your brain makes the transition into accepting that as a real environment of some kind, you can inject all kinds of stress on yourself and on your opponent. And it's real stress, even though you're in a fake abstract environment. Um, so now you can still see how your people make decisions under stress, which um, the first time you make decisions under stress should not be on the battlefield, right? That is far too late for that to happen. So doing that in the war game environment lets you see how your people handle stress, right? It lets you see who the ones who thrive, the ones who are slow or indecisive, and uh, and that's good for you to know about who the people you're you're operating with, um, because how they respond under stress should not be a surprise to you again, right? Like combat's not where you want to find all that out. Um, that's a way to to learn some a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your uh, everyone who's around you in that environment. Um, yeah, I think I had another point, but I lost it. So <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is. A, just a teeny bit off topic and then I'll just get get right back to to um, wargaming here to continue down that rabbit hole because this is a great rabbit hole um, I, I'm uh, I'm currently dabbling in some of Daniel Goldman's work on an emotional intelligence again uh, before I uh, go to PME and uh, they talk about how you can trigger your brain to like sense like these you know, you, you can en encapsulate, you can trigger your brain to feel a certain way, right? Like before you enter a situation that might not necessarily like, like wouldn't have initially triggered that same emotion, but like you can set yourself up to then operate in a certain like cognitive way because like you're, I don't know, this is like, I'm not a psychologist. I just thought it was really interesting thinking like people hyping themselves up uh, to, you know, before they have to go have like a, uh, a tough conversation, a difficult conversation, same thing, uh, you know, here, I'll probably omit this part of the, of the, the podcast. But. Well, I mean, maybe you don't have to, because there's, there's, there's not a, a, a large sort of body of research on this, but um, there have been, you know, some folks who have done wargaming or gaming in general of different kinds, but they look at the psychological and emotional impacts of it. Um, in fact, there's a couple guys who we know who've talked about it before, and, and maybe uh, I can point you back to some of the broadcast episodes we've done. But Dr. James Pigeon Fielder is one guy who really explores the, uh, he talks about the magic circle um, as a, it's, it's a, it's a fake environment, right? You know, war game is a fake environment, but your brain can accept it as something real and have real emotional responses and have, and the learning that comes in from that magic circle um, is real learning. And um, that's, uh, that's one of the, the things that those who like really believe in doing war gaming, like they, they think that it's re like, that's one of the real things is you can get real learning 
out of a fake thing because you're having real responses to it. As long as your brain, ex- if your brain sort of accepts, hits the I believe button that I am, I am in something that is real and has consequences to me, um, it, it will operate in the way that it would if you were in a, a real environment in the same way. The, the responses, it's still the real response, right? Like it's not a fake response. And in fact, one of the uh, the guys we talked to when we were over in Sweden, I hope I get his name right, um, Patrick Holterstrom, but he is doing a dissertation looking at trying to get more of that, like a better body of data on why is wargaming useful? Why is it valuable as an educational tool, as a tactical teaching tool? And it's looking at it from a, a sort of a more philosophical, conceptual standpoint to explain some of these things. Like we've, uh, like your hardcore gamers will be like, well, of course, wargaming is valuable because it's valuable, right? <laughs> or because it's, it must be valuable because, you know, we've different militaries have used it for, you know, a couple hundred years. If you want to use the Kriegspiel, Prussian Kriegspiel as your starting point, or heck, if you want to go back like a couple thousand years and look at, you know, more abstract games like chess or go, or these things that have been around forever. Well, people have been playing these all the time. Obviously they must be valuable. They feel like the utility is self-evident, but there's not a whole lot of body of scientific knowledge to like to back that up and so patrick is trying to start building that body and building a, f- a framework for going after that data to support it to to like to prove it and part of that is proving that that mental response that psychological response that is a real response even though it's a fake environment um in fact uh, on the flight over and on the flight back i was reading this book called uh, i might have to double check the title but it's like the art of losing in video games um, and it's a it's a short well it's a short book it's a long essay however you want to look at it, but it talks about like the paradox of video games where like it's we hate losing, right? We don't we don't like to lose, but we keep going back to this thing that we often lose at, and we have real emotional responses to losing. You know, you throw the controller across the room, right? You know, you you curse out your friends if you're on if you're on a headset. Um, you know, like the Leroy Jenkins things, right? Like your friend screws it up for you and you get mad at them. It's a real emotional response. You're playing a video game. It's not a real thing. It's not the real world, but you're having these real responses. And so, um, you know, I think the uh, my my point of all this is is that that there's something there, like um, that we just haven't really sort of developed a, a way to really categorize. But it, it is a real thing. We have real emotional responses to it, which means our brains are accepting it as a a real enough event to have a response to, which means you can use it to teach yourself real things. Um, we just we just sort of don't have the the formal framework or structure or like a real we don't have a, a scientific or an academic discipline yet to sort of put around that and prove it. But the pieces are there, and uh, um, yeah. So I, I think there you know there, there there's something there. You don't need to cut this part out because. The, uh, one of the th- things I found very fascinating about talking to Patrick is I think he is starting to build that framework to help prove, right? Like prove why wargaming is useful as an educational tool, as a tactical tool. And, uh, you know, maybe once we have that, then we can um, we can take that back to people who are skeptical of it and be like, why should I roll dice on the table, right? Um, and have a little more science to it rather than just, uh, well, it's good because we've always used it, which just because we've always done it that way, not the right answer. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about accelerating learning and, and learning organizations and flexibility, not the right answer. But if you have evidence for your argument, that helps mm-hmm. for why you should. 
that's that's so cool. I didn't realize what I was getting myself into with that question. That's great. I mean, that's no. I, I think Patrick's research is going to be um, tremendously useful to. I mean, not just it's not just going to be for the wargaming community. To be like, well, we told you so, right? Now we have the proof. Um, but this is how you get it out and get it used more to to get to make more people smarter by using it as a tool to make them better, to 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 improve their their decision making skills, their critical thinking. Um, because now you've got something you can point back to and say, like, there, I, I, I can back it up. I've got data. This is why we should do it. So let's do more. Mm -hmm. To talk a little bit about the nuances of um, of wargaming. Well, you mentioned like this, like employing like you know information warfare, the cyber capabilities, uh, the long range fires. I noticed you didn't say logistics. It depends. So it, de it depends on the game. And this kind of rolls back to the um, picking the tool that focuses on the learning outcome that you think is the most important. And one of the things that, you know, we at the Krulak Center have, have has become apparent is um, if you try and make a game do everything because you feel like your game has to cover every possible thing to be useful, you're going to turn it into an, an unusable mess, right? So that's why you need to look at what the core, the core thing you want the players to focus on is, and then you abstract things that are around it so that you can focus on what you think is important. I would note that um, a lot of the games increasingly that we have used have a logistical component to it. The Fleet Marine Force game I mentioned has um, logistics built into it in a, again, abstracted fashion, but you have to think about it because every unit on the battlefield has a limited inventory of munitions. So you, you know, you launch all your rockets, um, you can't shoot again until you get your supply companies to give you more rockets. Um, and interesting thing with the naval component is uh, your ships, like you can't, re within the framework of the scenario, which takes place usually over several hours of, of real world time, you know, with if you empty all your VLSs on a ship in 12 hours, you cannot resupply those in 12 hours underway. So now the players have to be judicious in how they use their, uh, their ship-based fires and ship-based air defense because that's a finite number um, for your land-based stuff you you get a little bit more supply availability so if you're you know again you shoot all your rockets on land you can resupply with other rockets your naval vessels you can't what you have is what you have so you got to think real hard about how you want to use them um, the uh, the operational war game that we're staring at right here has its own supply considerations you there are supply units on there and you have to be able to trace lines back to it with all your units Otherwise, your units go out of supply and are, uh, you know, reduced in combat effectiveness or they can't move. Um, but actually, the, the second recording, I love we're doing this because I got more stuff to talk about. So when we went to Sweden, right, um, uh, I had seen a game developed by, uh, uh, it, it was someone who under, I think it's Sebastian Bay, who's a, he's, he teaches war game design at Georgetown University. He does a lot of war gaming stuff. Um, one of the things he does is war game design at Georgetown University. And if I'm tracing this properly, he had one of his students who was looking to do an internship for game development. So he did it at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and helped students develop a logistics-focused game called Thor's Hammer. Uh, it takes place up in, in the high north again, uh, you know, looking at Norway and um, the environment up there. And it is, it is all about logistics. Um, and I thought it was so cool that uh, I asked them to send me the electronic stuff, so I made my own copy to take with me to Sweden to show it to them. And we actually laid it out yesterday here on the table, but it is all like combat is, you still do it, it's fairly abstracted, but the 
you're managing class one, class three, class five supply. That is how your units move. That is how they shoot. That is how they sustain themselves. If you don't give your units class one, they go hungry and they uh, they become less combat effective. And the the core of the game is keeping your units, managing those supplies, flowing them into the theater so your units can do the things that they, they need to do in combat. And uh, um, in terms of those joint capabilities, again, the things you have on the battlefield, like each side only has like maybe, I don't know, eight or 10 pieces on the board they're manipulating. But the big things are their supply values in terms of those classes. Um, the more of different supply types you have, that that augments your combat power. But then to keep them supplied, you have all these different joint capabilities in in cards that you uh, you have limited re- resource points that you invest in these cards. So the, and these these cards cover both logistic enhancements, so aerial delivery, um, civilian maritime sea lift, civilian air um, airlift. Um, for the Russians, they got railway support, railway companies. Um, um, let's see what else you got. You've got, uh, there's like petroleum, like POL support companies. So, uh, they can, they can push a lot of class three really, really far, but only class three. So, you, you know, you gotta think about how you want to invest in these things, but it's also in the cards where you get like your air defense, you can get some, some fire, some strike stuff to go after your enemy's logistics. Mm-hmm. And, um, man, it's a fascinating game because, uh, it really, it's all about supply. It's all about logistics and understanding that you can't just go everywhere you want and shoot all the time. And, you know, you're always magically, your belly's always full. You have to, you have to manage and plan those things. And, uh, and part of it is also under is pre-planning what you think you're going to need in two or three or four turns. Um, that's especially important for the, you like the NATO side that plays because a lot of your stuff is coming from, from like CONUS and the way that the game manages your supply investments is um it all starts like far far away and it's going to take a few turns for it to march there so you have to real think about like what do i really need what what classes of supply what uh what enhancements in terms of my you know aerial delivery or air defense all that stuff what do i invest in three turns from now what do i think i'm going to need um and uh man if, this, if the battlefield situation has changed stuff that magically arrives you know from conus may not be what you need anymore and you're gonna have to adjust um, and it also forces you to look at um you know a pods and s pods in terms of the infrastructure capacity they have so like you can't just build an iron you can't just dump all your supplies in like one safe place way back in the rear and draw from it all of your a pods and s pods have infrastructure limits so you can only put certain classes of supply in there and interestingly um the first time you put a military unit into those ports they take up some of that infrastructure space so you gotta like you can bring in say second meb is one of the units second marine expeditionary brigade is a unit you bring them in from offshore to a port they've now taken up like more than half of that port's infrastructure just to offload them you know get them onto land and get them going on the road so you can't dump a whole bunch of extra supplies in that port because the port can't handle it so where did you know you got to find another port for those supplies and if those are too far away well now you've got a med that has no supply because you didn't you didn't effectively um flow your stuff in um in a pro and it's it's I, I, there's a lot i'm explaining a lot of detail here it's actually a real, it's a pretty simple game system once you get it um but it is all about logistics and it's a it's a as a like a grassroots custom-made thing that some guy some guy and some army students made as a you know, a research project over a couple months 
fascinating tool and I, I can't think of anything similar to it. Um, so we are, but short version is we are thinking about logistics and war games because uh, we understand its importance. And especially if, again, we're, if we're focusing on competitor and Indo-PACOM, how we keep things supplied is gonna be huge because it's a massive environment. Um, there's uh, the infrastructure there is gonna be very important. Um, access is gonna be very important. And, uh, and you can have all of the, you know, the presence that you that you want by dropping people there, but if you can't sustain them, you know they're not going to be doing much for you. So you got to understand that piece of it. So we're my I, I have a personal like uh, it's not a crusade, but it's a I've always got my eyes open for things that will get you to look at the logistics piece, and because I think that that is an area that is historically has not been sort of put into war games a whole lot, um, unless you had some of these these monster war games like what the uh, you know, the old timers in the seventies and the, the golden age of wargaming, like they just, they love the pain of doing the logistics. And so these games would be massively complicated because they love that pain. Um, we don't have time necessarily for that level of pain, but we do want you, we do want our students to think about it. So we're always looking for more ways to, to present them with the logistics piece uh, as part of their education. Mm -hmm. That's a breath of fresh air as a sustainment professional, right? And I think every everyone that's listening that's a maintenance officer or a you know logistics officer anyone that works in sustainment is probably like whew, this is like i'm glad that exists one and two as as an as an operator you're able to articulate that right you know it um usually like there's i'm sure you're you know you're obviously aware of it the there's that that battle between uh, you know, ops and maintenance, right? Or logistics and everybody else. And like, um, this is a, a mechanism to come to like a mutual understanding of how we all play a part into the mission. Like not in a corny way, but like in a, a in a true um, like war fighting enhancing uh, method. I think it's, I think it's good stuff. Yeah, no, it, the fact that like these tools are coming more online now, I think is great. Um, I'll, I'll bootstop here. Thor's hammer is the name of the game. Uh, and I'm happy that they're having some sort of catastrophic success, if you will, because it's gone from being this, this internship and a school project to, um, you know, we took it to show a, a partner and potentially future NATO ally. Um, and uh, one of the game designers yesterday, uh, when he was doing a virtual walkthrough with us, mentioned that the NATO Joint Warfighting Center reached out to him after they saw that. I posted pictures of the game on Twitter when we were in Sweden. They saw that and they called asking this guy more about it because that like that's NATO's backyard, that game, that Norwegian Peninsula, that's their their main concern. Um, so and so he's now trying to figure out like man, how do we how do we meet this demand because he's not a game company, he's just like a couple there's a couple guys and some students like who made all the stuff on computers. So but I want to I'm happy to keep contributing to their catastrophic success if we can generate more of a demand signal to get it more widely available. Um, yeah. You know, but I think it's. On the, it's a nice compliment as a as a good tool, but um, you can also point to some of the real world stuff going on in Ukraine right now, which is like why this stuff matters because bad logistics um, is a combat nullifier, and we are seeing we saw that like in the early stages of the Russian forces, and we seem to keep seeing it. They don't seem to have sort of figured that piece out, um, and I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but that gets into a larger thing about you know your organizational culture and your ability to learn and adapt or not. 
Um, but we're seeing in real time, like if you mess up the logistics, um, if you think it's just going to happen, right? If you haven't trained how to do it properly under uh, austere or drying conditions, I don't care how good your tanks are, right? I don't care how far your missiles can reach. If I can't sustain the launchers, if I can't feed the troops to, you know, operating them, it doesn't matter. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's real world. I think the real world and the, some of the games coming online now that focus on logistics, it's a good compliment because now you can play out. Now you see in the real world why it matters. Now you get a little bit, you can do some more of that habit pattern development in the game to drive that point home. That's so cool. Like I, I just, I, I love all of this. Uh, but speaking of connecting uh, people to resources, uh, you know, you're able to connect those ideas and, and now uh, Thor's hammers like scaling. Uh, how does the Crew Lock Center, um, I, I know outreach is one of your uh, one of your lines of effort, but uh, how could an Air Force unit leverage the Crew Lock Center? How can uh, soldiers and, and sailors, um, like, how do you, um, well, are they open to come and war game or like just... How does that work? So we try and make ourselves as open as possible, like, you know, depending on our own bandwidth and our internal schedule, but you know, everything else being equal. And we have done this in the past. Like you reach out to us and say, I want to bring some folks by to try game X. As long as there's nothing conflicting us, you know, uh, for, for our, our direct university support, you can absolutely do that. Um, have done that a number of times. And, uh, Really, it's just a matter of getting everybody's schedules to line up. And, you know, if you can come on base to Quantico, it's a little bit easier because then we don't have to um, uh, pack our stuff up and go up there. But we can also do that. Um, you know, I've, we've taken games. I've, I took games to Sweden, right? Like, so <laughs> if I can bring it, if, if I can bring games over to Sweden, we can definitely bring games, you know, up the road to uh, national capital region or other places. Because the this is a bit of a tangent, but part of what... Uh, we also look at our game platforms that can be given out to the, the operating forces because a really awesome game that I can only use with massive infrastructure support in one place doesn't help those guys at the unit level, you know, mm -hmm. at the squadron level, the, uh, the company level, what have you. But if I can put something in a little box and take it to you and show you, now you have something you can use on your own under your, under with limited support required to do it. Um, and for the fleet marine force game system that's part of why that, so that particular game system has had catastrophic success if you will as well where uh units units asked for to make their own copies because um they didn't have anything like it right they don't uh they can't they can't come here all of them to just play it only in our spaces so the game designer sebastian again like okay i'll get it to you and so and it's been great because we've had all these pictures and this feedback from these units of them like playing this game in their own spaces or playing the game in the field. Like one of my, our favorite ones is, um, uh, favorite was fifth or sixth ESB, but anyway, reserve unit, uh, they made their own copy, like a print and play version with like, I'll tell you where to get the parts, you build it yourself. But they did that and we got pictures of them like in their command tents in the field on a drill weekend and they're playing the game on the table, right? Like to, from our perspective, like that is the ultimate end state is for the, the actual operators, the people who are gonna go execute your mission they get to do this decision making, build these habit patterns, build this, um, you know, build these problem solving skills where that where they are at, without us, without them having to wait for us to go meet them, or without having to ask for you know larger resources that they're realistically not going to get. 
there are, there are tools that you can get for minimal resource and minimal overhead. Those are the things we want to try and help get out there because then we're expanding the base of people who get the experiential learning that Wargaming gives. We're, we're building, we're expanding that base, right? And that that's an enhancement to our force, the more people get that experience. Um, so, but anyway, to reel it back, yes, we were happy to have people come and do it here. You know, as long as, uh, as it's not an out, you know, crazy request, we can go on the road and do things as well. Um, you know, but, but if we're not talking wargaming, if we're just talking, you know, learning more about what the center does and other things we can connect people to, because we've, I mean, we've talked about wargaming for like 90% of this, but that's yeah. not all we do, actually. That's just one uh, one. It's really cool to piece. talk about. It's though. really cool to talk yeah. about. It, it has taken up uh, a lot of attention um, over the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. I don't feel bad talking about it too much, but we do do other things. So I think it's re- refreshing for an Air Force audience to hear about, because it's not something that like, you know, just, just war fighting period isn't something that is uh, just that that term isn't necessarily like used a whole lot, right? You know, war gaming isn't, you know, uh, something that we, we focus on. Well, I mean, I would argue like that, you know, what war gaming can make more apparent to you is the why. Like, why am I, why am I generating sorties? Why am I trying to be ready? You know, it's not just because I like to be ready. You know, it's not for me, it's for something else. And Wargaming can show you what that something else is. It can show you show you the impact of good story generation and good readiness, right? Like that's doing something somewhere for someone. Wargaming can show you what that is and give you a better appreciation of how you're contributing to that. Because I, I get it, like it's not always apparent, right? Um, if, you're, if you're separated in some fashion from, you know, the fight or the action or the mission, what have you, sometimes it, it's not obvious, like, you know why? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I? Why am I busting myself to generate sorties? Why am I working long hours or working over the weekend? You know, it's not a vacuum. It, there's a purpose to it, and a good war game can show you. To, you can better understand the purpose of how you fit into that larger thing. Mm-hmm. So to to wrap this up, you know, you mentioned war gaming is not the only thing that Krulak Center of Innovation does. I want to foot stomp that. <laughs> just just really cool to talk about. Um, uh, what is something that you haven't talked about yet that you would like to share about the crew lock center and 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 what the crew lock center truly leverages so i would uh i'd say we one of our strengths is that we have built up a very energetic and supportive community of interest that has allowed us to do vastly more things than if we were just you know the individuals here in the office like kind of looking at each other trying to think up cool things to do um, and the, the most direct manifestation of that is actually on some of our social media channels. And so the first thing I would point to is if you, you want to get a taste more about what the Kulak Center has to offer and a sense of what our community is that we like to make available to others is look at our YouTube channel and look at all the different um, PME classes that we put on there. By my last count, we have about 130 something videos on there. Um, and it covers a lot of different stuff. We, we've got those innovation summit presentations. So if you want to know more about the student research that goes on here, um, got two years now. I just posted the AY22 innovation summit videos this week. To show you the kind of research the students do, which is the things that Marine Corps University is interested in, which are also a lot of emerging concepts that the force, all the forces are going to have to think about down the road. And that covers everything from wargaming. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, but how you can use wargaming to explore future concepts 
for two years two years in a row now, I think we've had student presentations where they've used a war game to explore the Marine Littoral Regiment, things that it can do, environments it can do those things in, things that it might not be able to do as well, and environments where it might struggle, but using commercial war games to gather some information about that. Uh, we had Kingfish Ace, you know, we had the Air Force Lieutenant Colonel who built a game to explore an Air Force operating concept. Um, but we've also had d- different different things. And uh, let's see, this year we had a lot of stuff about information, information, operations, the information environment, disinformation, misinformation. Um, uh, the year before we had a, uh, a captain who talked about a project she had done before she came to Expeditionary Warfare School, but it became her, her research project. But it's how you leverage different social media channels to, uh, to get your message out. She used it from a recruiting perspective but she was sort of expanding it into, you know, the larger, you know, the global operating space that we're in, right? Um, your your information and which includes your social media channels, uh, that's a space to compete in, right? That's a space to gain advantage, and it takes some skill and understanding about what the different tools in those spaces are, who's listening to them, um, what messages out, go out across them, and. Uh, I would I would argue going back to our real world examples, right? Like we are seeing that in the war in Ukraine today. We are seeing effective um, use of that information space. How you can use social media to enhance to when you don't have a material advantage. How you can use that to gain a um, it's a it's a it's a moral advantage. But that moral advantage can then be turned into like a much bigger material advantage to help you out to offset the things you don't have. And convert you compare you know with the with the Russian adversaries who seem to be like we we thought they were like the the masters of the universe in the information domain they are stumbling around and it's 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 remarkable to see how you know these you know everyone talks about Darth Putin right this master manipulator and they are just struggling around whereas Ukraine almost out of nowhere has been executing this this information campaign that has gotten the military might of a of you know, a lot of the Western alliances, at least behind them as a real combat enhancement, but using information to go get that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but I I can imagine if, uh, you know, if the Ukrainian you know, government and society as a whole, if they were not as effective at their their information campaign, we wouldn't be giving them the same level of support that we are. Mm-hmm. And they'd be in a much worse place now. But they have um, they are conducting a master class and how to do that. And you're seeing the tangible results you can get on the battlefield of a of a powerful information campaign, um, and this actually ties in some other maneuver warfare stuff that we don't have to get into right now. Um, maybe we can follow it up at some point. But like effective operation at the mental and moral levels of war can gain you real advantages in, in the physical world if you understand how to leverage them. Uh, anyway, those are some of the things on the innovation summit side. So that's what you know. Examples of student research here. Examples of other of our you know other areas of interest of our wider our wider community of support. I got lots of other classes that are broadcast our podcast series here, where we bring on experts to talk about just their different areas of expertise. And now that's a free class that's available to anybody who wants to go onto YouTube and watch it. Um, and so that's free learning resources that are available. All you got to do is sit down and watch it, uh, or you can listen to it on our podcast channels. We also do like audio only versions of these on. Uh, on Apple and Spotify and most of the, the main podcasting platforms, you know, but as, as a starting point, like that's, that's free stuff that we have to offer that you can take a look at. Um, I'll, I'll hit one other thing and then I'll shut up, which is um, we've, uh, 
we also have other products that we put out. And one of those is the Destination Unknown PME graphic novel series, volume three of which just dropped. I think actually it dropped after our last conversation. So again, this re-record is a good thing. So we can talk about new stuff. But the Destination Unknown series is this, it's a, it's a comic book, right? It's a group, but it's a graphic novel series that was initially designed by some uh, post-command and staff students here who are trying to think of a an innovative way to get Marines to think about and discuss emerging technologies, you know, future warfighting concepts in a way that was accessible to them, right? Like uh, instead of handing them, uh, you know, a thick Rand report about something, right? Um, I'll give you a, a comic book story, but I'm tailoring it to look at, at specific things that, that you can discuss. So uh, the cool thing about it is that all of the uh, all the artwork and all the stories are done by service members. The volume one was all Marines, art, artists and authors, but volumes two, 2.5 and three, we opened up the aperture to different services. So volume two has Navy contributions, Air Force contributions, volume three, which just came out. Now we're getting, uh, getting entry level folks, right? So we're getting that, that, you know, that younger perspective, you know, I'm, I, I like comic books and I wrote a story for volume 2.5, but I'm not necessarily, I, I don't have the same upbringing or experiences as the entry level people who are now, you know, 20 years behind me, they could see some stuff that I don't, that, that we don't, that could be really good to talk about. So we're getting, getting them in there now too, you know, and these stories, it's not just like, it's not, it's not Marines fighting space aliens. Um, although that'd be a really cool story, but it's, uh, you know, what are, what are Marines or parts of the Joint Force? What might they be doing with, with artificial intelligence as a enhancer or as a possible impediment down the road? You know, what if we no kidding put Marines in space? What would they be doing? Um, Halo. The, Halo, yeah. <laughs> um, or they might, but they might be doing other things. Um, for, uh, for the manned-on-man teaming we talk about, what if we, what if you are so, what if that teaming is so close that you're actually plugging the machine into the human? What does it do to them emotionally, right? What if uh, one of the, I think it was the Air Force story um, where your drone operators are now plugged directly into the drone. Their brain is plugged into it. And so all of the somewhat horrifying things that you see through a drone screen, they're now like, their body is seeing it and experiencing it. What would that do to you mentally? What would that do to you, you know, morally? Would that cause some sort of moral injury by having, you know, maybe it's more efficient, right? But that could have a consequence that we don't know about. Um, what else do we have? We had, uh, we had one in the Navy one was about how does a toxic command climate impact your military readiness? You know, I, I can't imagine anyone who thinks that it wouldn't impact it, but, um, you know, it turns out if everybody's miserable and they don't trust their seniors and they're, if they're even thinking about self-harm because the, their environment is so horrible, that's going to affect your readiness, which in turn is going to affect your ability to respond to a crisis especially if that crisis pops up out of nowhere and every second counts, all right? If I don't have, and if I don't trust or I don't wanna respond quickly to the person above me giving me an order to do something because I don't trust them, I might lose precious seconds that could that could decide an engagement for me. That that actually does matter, you know, uh, the, your command climate and uh, and all kinds of other stuff. But So we're, we're talking about these things, we're illustrating them in uh, by leveraging the talent of our our service members, you know, we got a lot of great artists out there, a lot of great authors who can express these things in different ways. And then as an educational tool, there are discussion questions at the end of every story. So you can take it and you can drive those into, into uh, more deep areas beyond just what the story has. So if my story is talking about using artificial intelligence as a recruiting tool, for example, well, I can talk about, well, you know, do you agree with what the story presented, right? 
what things did it overlook? Um, what things do you think might actually be legitimate considerations for having a machine help you decide who comes in and who doesn't? Um, and it's all just to, to and you know, we want we want our Marines to think about these things. We want our our sailors, airmen, um, soldiers to think about these things to to give them that cognitive advantage. We're just trying to give them another tool to actually do that, a tool that they'll want to use rather than like, okay, if I drop a RAN report on their desk, are they going to read it? Probably know. not. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, unlikely. <laughs> I mean, I'm a nerd it's a, and I don't even. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's the, the it's a non-zero chance, but it might be mathematically indistinguishable from zero. So speaking of generations, like a RAND report isn't tailored to, you know, Gen Z, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's not the a PFC isn't going to be reading a RAND report more than likely, right? I'm sure there's a couple out there that, that do, um, but, but yeah, it's just not, not tailored to the audience. Yeah. So, and, and so there's nothing wrong with tailoring things to an audience, right? right. I mean, we do it with wargaming. Like we're not going to, I'm not going to drop a global strategic war game on, on a group of captains, although it might be interesting to see what they do with it, you know, but if they're operating, uh, if their considerations are, are tactical, I want them to, to be, I want them to get, to get that in that environment because they're probably more likely to engage with it if it's accessible to them rather than giving them something, they're going to look at it and then put a mental wall up, you know, in front of themselves up front because they're going to look at it and be like, I can't do that. Or that's not, that's not my thing. Or I'm, or I'm just not interested in it. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with presenting things in an interesting way that make people want to learn more because that's what gets them coming back for, um, for more knowledge. If you're an engaged, interested learner, you're going to want to keep learning those things. Um, so make it engaging, make it interesting. And it's okay, like people learn in different ways. So I, it's okay to present something that has maybe more pictures and color. I'm, I mean, I don't wanna stereotype the Marine here, right? Of like, I need pictures and colors to, to, to get it. But that's a way of engaging different learning faculties. Like we don't all learn through just reading text on a page, right? Um, and, and I think as, as more pieces of our, not just military educational enterprise, but educate, you know, educational learning in general, you know, going back to your psychological stuff, we're learning more about how the human brain works. Brains work in different ways. They absorb information in different ways. So let's have some options to present information, uh, whether that's uh, uh, text on a page or whether that's a graphic novel or whether it's a podcast, right? Where some people just, they, they listen and that's how their brain is wired to absorb that information. So let's, let's give them options. Good stuff. Well, sir, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it and uh can't wait to come on broadcast yeah no again i appreciate you taking the time and i yeah no we look forward to, to hearing more about what you're doing and what the air force is doing in the space here on our show uh, down the road Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn.
Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.